when I planned this course, um, I had not planned this class. I had planned to um, look more at the theme of fatalism, uh, particularly as it manifested in uh, season two. Um, and to, uh, but I found that, um, uh, that uh, we were, um, there weren't a lot of bites on the fatalism uh in uh the uh last thursday and so it seemed sensible to uh spend a little time reconfiguring using the opportunities occasioned by the difficulty of um scanning the carol stack book while it fell apart in my hands so uh um also i'm teaching this identitarianism course at one o'clock and um it's been raising interesting issues um, around uh, how um, class interacts with a politics of uh, gender and sexuality. So it seemed like um, this was a worthwhile thing. Um, I thought I'd, uh, I'd again lean a little bit on um, uh, a term that I've uh, been encountering in a few different ways in a few different settings in uh, setting this up. Hey, Jonathan. Um, and uh, I think if I were to try and come up with a, a master term here, it's, um, it's about how we model pluralism. Uh, that um, in a way, Engagements with gender and sexuality, uh, more so than engagements with race, um, are ways in which we can see how the park handles pluralism, and also we can see how the park offers alternative models of pluralism when it comes to forms of gendered and sexual identity. Uh, there's, um, uh, so when we look at the larger sweep of the series, um, it's interesting how few people have attempted to indict it as homophobic, given that our primary villains are a, uh, <laughs> are a gay couple. Um, and, um, they're not merely a gay couple. Um, we know that they enjoy various types of drag performances, not merely traditional drag performances, but the kind of um, interspecies drag performances that the world of Tumblr um, has uh, dumped into the mainstream. Um, Right, our, our first, uh, um, and you sort of wonder like, what are Jim and Randy getting up to? What is the sexualized story they're telling in which one of them is Indiana Jones and the other is a bumblebee? Uh, how, um, how, how are we even putting all this together? And I, I think one of the first things um, to recognize um, here is that this is a peculiar kind of working class self-assertion. Um, this property of being um, 
identitarian in that you think you can consensually select your own identity um, is a highly classed idea. Like people will use examples of everybody always says to people have to refer to uh, racialized trans people in their justifying discourses. But so often when people um, affect a uh, a modern identitarian form of identity, whether that be transracial, transgender, or something entirely more conservative, this is often a very classed experience, right? And if you look at um, Tumblr, the social media platform where um, a lot of that really grew up, um, you see, um, People in their mid-teens uh, using terms from the postmodern critique, from queer theory, from all kinds, in all <clears throat> kinds of ways, using terminology that marks them as enjoying a certain kind of class privilege, which then entitles them to a boutique identity. So I think the fact that um, Randy and Jim like to dress up is um, um, is an interesting way in which um, the creators of the show are making a claim of co-ownership of certain kinds of sexual performances and breaking down class barriers to performing uh, boutique sexual identities. Um, so, um, so we can see an ambivalence there. But at the same time, it is impossible. It is impossible to argue that the show is not at some level homophobic. Um, the way in which homophobic insults are highly effective against Jim and Randy, the way in which uh, Julian and others can dominate them in a public setting by... Um, talking about their identity, right? For a while, until the late season three, we think that what Jim and Randy like is something that's just being held over them, that its power over them is because they're closeted, uh, because they won't come out. But although there's this moment where they come out and everybody lets them know that they don't hate them because they're gay, or because they like to dress up. Those same dominant games continue to be used against them to exploit the homophobia of the police department or the homophobia of the people in the park. Um, so, in so, so uh, first, and, and this is, I think, something we're gonna see throughout an examination of gender and sexuality in the show. Um, I think that moments of, um, of pluralism or tolerance in the show are very much like the moments of grace in the show. They're sudden and they're ephemeral. Uh, that um, that we, we, uh, we get, uh, there are these moments of tolerance and then things slide back moments of tolerance and then things slide back. And so it's pretty clear that 
the parks residents do idealize um, a sort of normative heterosexual marriage. And one of the ways in which the boys themselves are humiliated or defeated throughout the show is their inability to achieve that. That they don't become <clears throat> upstanding citizens in the park, right? We meet the one guy with the successful marriage in season one. And Levi, who we don't see again in the subsequent seasons, is on top of everything. He is universally respected because he has a continent, respectable, heterosexual marriage. He doesn't have kids out of wedlock, any of those things. Now, I think uh, be, uh, before, uh, before going on too much, um, it's important to look at um, what we know uh, sociologically and anthropologically about the kind of people who are being depicted in the show. Um, a big difference between the English working class and the Anglo-American working class is the Anglo-American working class are a very prudish working class and the English working class are not. Um, it's one of the things that will, uh, that, that wrong foots uh, working class English people when they come to the Americas. Um, they expect a certain level of promiscuity that given that they're going to go to be in these communities in which they're not respected or respectable people, um, they find it quite strange that um, the Anglo-American white working class so prizes and idealizes marriage um, and um, are... Um, while they're big consumers of pornography, they are the people in our society who are least likely to have sex outside of marriage, least likely to approve of sex outside of marriage, and likely to have sex the fewest times per year. Um, one of the strong uh, things we find in uh, Anglo-American society, uh, particularly with women, less so with men, is... Um, that education really, really strongly tracks to the number of times you have sex in a year. Uh, it's the strongest, it's the strongest predictor for women. And uh, not income, but education. And uh, so one of the things then that um, the show, I think does a good job of depicting is it shows just how little sex everybody's having. Uh, these are, um, and, and, um, and that when this is attempted, people are thwarted in amusing ways uh, in their attempts to do this fairly basic thing. I guess you can't bang behind the muffler shop anymore, you know? Uh, and, um, you know, you used to be able to bang behind the muffler shop, uh, but that, of course, is like looking back at an idealized past. Um, yeah. There probably was no moment you could bang behind the muffler shop with any reliability. Uh, so one of the things that we're witnessing then, and one of the things that helps to explain uh, the latent homophobia 
is that a trailer park is uh, a trailer park full of white people is a very sexually conservative place. Um, they're conservative about sexual identity. They're conservative about sexual acts. They're conservative about the recognition of relationships and the exclusivity that they might imply. Uh, and one of the reasons that we might think that is, is that many of the tools that are available to richer patriarchal societies for asserting male privilege uh, and uh, the patriarchal base unit is uh, are unavailable. Uh, the marriage is an expensive thing. And because of that culture of reciprocity um, that, that's so important in the Carol Stack book, marriage is out of is further out of your reach than it is for middle class assholes right the middle class you can fly yourself and your parents to scotland have a you know eight thousand dollar wedding or whatever and fly home and your community will turn around and recognize your wedding even though they didn't they didn't get to go to scotland they 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 didn't they didn't get they didn't get a single beer they didn't get a hot dog and you can see right that in order to legitimate um the marriage of Ricky and Lucy it's necessary to rob the grocery store it's like no we don't want any money we just want the food um you know and there are Corey and Trevor figuring that if they just get enough bananas it'll it'll fill in all of the other gaps. And so uh, marriages, again, are more traditional, not in the sense of a specific religious liturgy or a specific style of dress, but based on the idea that, every, that you're responsible for getting everyone in your community drunk that night. That the marriage in, that a more traditional marriage is not a moment of acquisition as it is for the bourgeoisie with their gift registries, right? The Bay's got a gift registry. Zeller's does not have a registry. And Zeller's is, right, the normative store, the, um, the, the place where the fuck off department is located. Uh, and so um, the, uh, and so you have an older uh, a more venerable tradition that really, you know, goes back to before the Catholic-Protestant split, where you, where the, the normative standard of marriage is that of the potlatch. Uh, it's about the destruction and distribution of wealth. Uh, in the, uh, and it's conversion into something inside this symbolic order. Uh, so... The society then is conservative about its gender roles. It's conservative about uh, ideas to do with sexuality. It's conservative about the mutual obligations that go with the solemnization of marriage. Uh, now, uh, of course, 
Um, uh, Randy and Mr. Leahy are not the only people who are held up to gender-based or sexual mockery. Um, right? You, whenever Corey and Trevor are off screen performing miracles and acquiring large trucks and, uh, you know, um, capturing Rita McNeil or, or, uh, or whatever it is, um, you also assume they're doing some other stuff together that uh, uh, they're, they're probably getting up to because of their constant disappointment with the lack of sex that the park is providing them. And uh, of course, we, we get to, to formalize that with um, right, the fact that they're, um, nobody's ever in a couple uh, with either Corey or Trevor, right? Sarah is involved with Corey and Trevor. Um, one of the things that that helps to expose to us is that Trailer Park Boys is much as they're making various sexual and gender performances that are largely associated with the white bourgeoisie available to people in the park, they're not placing them in the categories the white bourgeoisie are going to place them. Um, Corey and Trevor don't have a sexual orientation in the modern sense of the word. Um, they've got like a hierarchy of acceptable sex, uh, but um, the idea that who they are is driven by a set of aesthetic preferences, uh, that's, that's not how we choose to define Corey and Trevor. In many ways, right, Mr. Leahy is very reluctant to identify as gay because I think very legitimately, he doesn't see this as a full translation of his sexual identity. And he very much misses a whole bunch of the domestic things that come of having a wife, right? The things that Randy will do to try and please Mr. Leahy at home um, are performances of femininity, not in a sexual sense, but in terms of like making doilies or cleaning the trailer, all these things that he knows Mr. Leahy misses that aren't really what Randy's about, but they're filling in this piece of Mr. Leahy's sexuality that isn't fully expressed in what we might call a gay relationship. Um, so one of the powers that they have in the show is the, the fact that um, it goes back to there's certain categories. One of the things about the show, and I chose mostly not to run with this. Maybe I'll redo another lecture for this. But, you know, I've been long fascinated in the 10 years I've been sort of doing my thinking outside of a university setting. Um, the invention of the concept of the neighbor, right? That um, there are no neighbors before the 15th century because why would you need a word for somebody who lived near you that you didn't know? There's no such person, right? There are no neighbors in the trailer park um, because everybody has a more specific identity than neighbor, 
um, like that asshole or the greasy caveman or whatever it is. So one of the things about the park is that it has a bunch of what we might call pre-modern characteristics in its unwillingness to create uh, to use categories when something or when a person or a dynamic can be named specifically. We don't need a name for Corey and Trevor's um, sexuality because um, they're the because everybody knows what you mean when you say Corey and Trevor. Any other thing would actually become less precise, and so the ability to not name is a lot of where the tolerance and pluralism in the park comes from. That um, you're tolerated not because you're a kind of person, but because you're you and you're there. And we don't need a set of rules for dividing people into kinds of people and then explaining why each of these kinds of people merits relatively egalitarian behavior. Now, there's, there's another element to this, though. Um, when people have studied pluralism in the Roman Empire, um, Roman pluralism, like um, the pluralism of 19th century Chicago or New York, uh, was full of riots. Um, it was full of riots and name-calling. Um, and this is not exactly intolerance. It is a kind of rough-and-tumble pluralism. It is a kind of pluralism that we might associate with the virtues of uh, a kind of masculinity rather than a progressive theory of pluralism. A progressive theory of pluralism is about inhibition, self-control, not saying what, not saying the offensive thing. Um, this kind of more venerable pluralism involves using fights and riots as a safety valve that uh, just as our, in arguments about fire protection uh, in this age of climate change, where we go, well, you know, these fires wouldn't be laying waste everything in front of them if we hadn't been preventing this fire for the previous 30 years and building up all of these, uh, all this flammable material on the forest floor. Um, when you, and so these other models of pluralism you see a society avoiding large-scale violence, avoiding large-scale offensiveness by engaging in regular, smaller-scale violence and offensiveness. Um, and I think that this is very much the park's model for tolerating homosexuality. Um, it is a homophobic park. Um, and the reason that really bad things don't happen. The reason people don't stalk Corey and Trevor and wait, you know, so that they can witness them having sex and then beat them with uh, with baseball bats. The reason that um, people uh, don't burn uh, Randy and Mr. Leahy's trailer down 
has a lot to do with these with this constant sniping and name calling in which the denizens of the park engage that uh, the that this will temporarily diffuse uh, the violence and prevent it from building up. Uh, now, whether that's a good or bad model of pluralism, I think that that we have to situate sort of what we might think of as minority or stigmatized forms of sexuality in that context. Now, once upon a time, um, of course, when we talk about gender and sexuality, we would have been primarily talking about um, women's experiences. Uh, that, that would be what the title of the lecture would signify rather than um, foregrounding the sexual experiences that were being had by the fewest people, uh, which is our, our current cultural move. Uh, good reasons for both or either. Um, and certainly, um, we then we also have this problem of uh, Aristotle, which is that when we do either of those things, what we're foregrounding is that we think that straight male sexuality is just the norm. It's not an object of analysis. It's not an object of study because we're just going to use that as the metric and compare everything else against it. And that has its own set of problems, obviously. So, what, so, so I talked a bit about marriage, heterosexual marriage, and the basic conservatism of um, the park. What are some other dynamics that we can see um, that are distinctive here? I, and for me, one of them is, and I, I, we, I don't think we've got to this episode, the playing space episode, um, but uh, uh, in season five, right, Mr. Leahy is uh, back to drinking and he's filled all these water bottles with vodka. And um, uh, Ray, of course, figures out what's going on and they, they interview him and he says, you know, Leahy, he's just going around with that bottle of vodka thinking it fools people. You know, I think he stole that from me. I invented that. Uh, I was doing that for years when I was with Tammy and hiding the drinking. Um, one of the things that we, um, that we see in um, male-female relationships in the show is this Coyote Roadrunner dynamic where um, there, is, there are all these futile attempts to catch men doing things they shouldn't be doing. Um, and that in many ways, the way that um, women are told to express interest in or affection for their male partner is the policing of that partner's conduct. Uh, and that if and that if if Lucy is falling out of love with Ricky at a certain point, Lucy will complain about his conduct, but she'll become totally uninquisitive about it. Um, that the 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 Coyote Roadrunner game will stop 
that Ricky will just uh, go out and fuck up. And this is, um, yeah, and this isn't, uh, so this guardian of virtue role, not a social guardian of virtue, but guardian of your man's virtue, um, will also expand into other things. So all kinds of representations of vice become conflated with sex. Um, so doing hard drugs is indistinguishable from sleeping around. Um, not turning over the money you're supposed to is in that category. And what we see when we look at the things that are conflated with sex, um, they have to do with um, the ability of the man to materially provide. Uh, that, oh, that money got spent on a hooker, that money got spent on drugs, that money got spent on guns, that money got lost. Uh, and, um, and so we see, um, uh, and so we see that there's, that this virtue policing is, appears initially to be primarily about sexual continence, but is much more about the material continence of the relationship to retain the resources that the relationship has acquired through the partner's labor. The traits that are idealized in uh, men that uh, the various men in the show fail to live up to. Uh, I'm reminded of Sam Losco's various attempts to take over the part. And the number one reason that, Ms. that Sam Losco can't take the park over is that he doesn't have a trailer. Um, the trailer is never his. Uh, and when he um, does, isn't in somebody else's trailer, he's in a camper. And as Leahy explains, People who live in campers can't run anything. Uh, so uh, similarly, the difference between Ricky's level of failure as a man, between whether he's living in his car or whether he's sleeping outside of his car, like the car is not good enough, but it's also clear that the car is such a huge step upwards and this is actually um, a very striking difference from most uh, cultures' understandings of masculinity. Um, the, the only sort of subculture I can really think that, that, um, uh, that understands masculinity in a similar way would be um, uh, Mormon polygamists, the, uh, that, uh, the understanding that having a house, having a domicile is central to the performance of masculinity. This isn't true of the vast majority of COC and LDS members, but in that little minority living in Colorado City or passing in Sandy uh, or living out in uh, Bountiful in Creston, um, the house attaches to the male gender rather than to the female. And this remains the actual source of Julian's charisma. 
Um, it's the fact that Julian never loses his trailer. That, yes, he never loses the rum and coke, but it's that capacity. And then in many ways, what's encoded in holding the rum and coke is the way that Julian has this special property of being unable to be stripped of his possessions, no matter what the material circumstances are that he faces. And so he has, so he always has the trailer, right? When he's going to get together with Candy at the end of season one, he's bought her a special trailer, the, that insane, um, hobbit type trailer i can't even describe it um it uh, but it's it's really important that um julian is seen as the most manly in the eyes of women interested in men because of the stability of his relationship with a domicile and the fact that he can provide that domicile in almost any other schema of male female difference men are providers of wealth but the domicile is gendered female and that men are judged by, um, men are not judged by having their own house or what their own house is like. Uh, but in the park, the possession of the trailer is so central there. Um, we learn, um, relatively, little about um, ideals of femininity in the show. Um, I, I think it's, it's a real um, blank spot. I mean, I, I mean, I think this show has wonderful politics overall. Um, I wouldn't rate the show's gender and sexual politics particularly highly. And I think one of the, the reasons for that uh, is um, that it's, um, and certainly, yes, it's trailer park boys, but Normally, when we're listening to boys, um, the main thing they're talking about is, are the features and traits that make women attractive to them. That's a, that's a, that's a very, um, it's an easy discourse. I mean, and I'm very self-conscious of the discourse. One of the things I was, um, I this great chance to restart my, my life in Toronto. One of the things I had to learn to do um, you know, cause, uh, you know, gender is a performance. It's a hassle. Um, gender doesn't fit anybody like a well-tailored suit, as I said many times in the other class today. Um, so Toronto has this, this horrible patio culture where you, you sit at a bar on a patio in 95% humidity at about 35 degrees and you just sweat. You sweat and you drink these beers, and and apparently this is some sort of good time, and um, so we have to narrate what our what our privileges are, what the things are that we're enjoying by the fact that we're not in the nice air conditioned bar seven feet away, uh, and um, the the main way that that privilege is articulated is uh, apparently the extraordinary opportunities that we as straight men. Uh, have to enjoy looking at the women walking down the street next to the patio. Um, now, I am not a tremendously observant person. I 
it's not that I'm bad at seeing. You can point me at anything and I can notice a series of visual characteristics. But if stuff is just going by my eyes and I'm talking to you, I'm 100% in the conversation. That leads to all kinds of other problems too, of course. But um, like, I think the conversation is what's really going on, blah, blah, blah. Uh, lots of problems this causes me. But it also means that unless somebody is burning to death, as they walk by, I will deprioritize that visual information. It will not interrupt my flow of thought at all. Uh, you know, I had these new friends. I was trying to impersonate somebody who was not like a well-known local eccentric, but, you know, just somebody from somewhere else who was having a day. And so I'd hang out with these friends and um, I had to fake having seen all these people walk by. And then I had to like guess based on my prior knowledge of the tastes of the men I was talking to, what the person was likely to have looked like in case someone asked me a follow-up question. And so um, it was all quite fraught doing this particular performance of patio masculinity in Toronto that I claimed to have seen and appreciated the appearances of, by the time I left the city, hundreds and hundreds of people who I never actually noticed. Um, so I think it's, it's quite common, especially with conversationally unsuccessful men who might drive the conversation into the ditch every two minutes by saying something idiotic, um, that constantly interrupting the conversation with observations about, um, things one likes about women, um, that's, that's pretty normal. Um, and I, I do find it striking that all we know is that um, Ricky really likes Lucy. We don't know anything else about what he, he idealizes the woman he mistakenly thinks is the mother of his child. That's it. Julian's taste seems sort of... Um, well, it seemed to arise primarily from the fact that he's less successful at, at um, sort of courtship stuff than Ricky and views any attention he receives as very flattering. Um, but again, we don't know anything about his inner life on that front, nor Bubbles, nor any other male character. Uh, and that's... Um, that's an interesting, um, that's an interesting lacuna in the show. Um, we, um, we don't know anything about, um, about that aspect of, um, of our male characters, despite this being a show that's totally oriented towards their perspective on the world. Um, now, I think that's, those are most of the observations that I wanted to make about uh, gender and sexuality in the show. Obviously, the bonus episode I gave you last week was Ricky and Julian 
uh, getting Corey and Trevor together with the drag queens as a way of playing a prank on them. But it's also clear at the end of the episode, but it's not entirely clear that this was an ungenerous move, that Corey and Trevor appear, according to their testimony at the end of the episode, to have had a pretty good time. And um, you don't see in the subsequent episodes them being ribbed or judged or having anything problematic happen to them. In this way, I think that, um, uh, you know, we're, um, as I would argue is actually typical of more conservative cultures, this culture is much happier to have transgender people in it than it is to have gay people in it. That because people with transgender identities actually reinforce conservative gender stereotypes and conservative gender boundaries, um, that um, the society in the park is gonna have a less less of a problem with these visitors than um, they uh, uh, than they might with gay men. Yeah, I think it's it's a great way of showcasing how Ricky's innocence makes him um, makes him this better person in these very strange contexts. That his his failure to imbibe a sort of latent homophobia in the part. Um, is, yeah, it reflects beautifully on him. I think also, though, the fact that he goes so quickly to we both are gay um, has to do with the way that stigma associated with being gay would be mitigated by the social capital of Julian. That Julian's social capital, especially in Ricky's mind, uh, where Ricky overestimates Julian's social capital all the time, um, that that also functions as a mitigating force. But yeah, it's good. Yes, maybe I am gay. I uh... <laughs> okay. So so Jonathan, tell us the Church Street story because we're we're warming up the room here. Well, it's it's no. I mean, it's it's. It's, it's nothing more than I've said, really. It's, I found the whole story hilarious because I spent far too much time on Toronto patios, exactly as you describe. I mean, I don't have a hard time ogling women as they walk by as you do. So in that sense, they're less awkward. On the other hand, as I say, I used to live at basically the corner of Jarvis and Maitland, which if you've ever been to Toronto, is the street of transvestite prostitutes, in case you need to find those in Toronto. That is where you go. I and think the, they had moved by the time I got there. You know, that's possible. <laughs> but, um, but if you wanted to, if you live there and you want to sit in a patio, you're sitting on a church street patio because God help right. you if you go to Sherburn and try to <laughs> do anything in public. So um, we would spend, you know, weekend mornings having brunch at these patios where a couple of men sitting in a patio together were obviously gay and were treated as gay by everyone around them because it's church street. <laughs> right? And I mean, uh, nice women going by, but they're all lesbians. You know that. Right? <laughs> well, or, um, uh, yeah, and I think... Or, it, or transvestite prostitutes, equally. <laughs> yes. So, but there you were, and um, you were enacting this manliness, but in a way that observers would have seen as um, 
Yeah. Uh, a a non-straight manliness. Yeah, and it was very clear that the wait staff understood us to be gay because they were. Right. Right, and so we were just like, okay, whatever. This is, <laughs> this is the environment we're in. We can pretend, it doesn't matter. Well, and Church Street is such an odd geography of place because it's intentional, right? That body mm -hmm. politic as a periodical set about creating a ghetto over five years. Uh, that, uh, which is a very Toronto thing to do. The idea that you glue culture to specific uh, locations on the surface of the street. Oh yeah, or, or repurpose them. I mean, Cabbage Town is another example of completely appropriated identity. It's like, let's have a nice middle-class neighborhood. It's going to borrow the name and the history of the working-class neighborhood next door, which has been destroyed. And we're gonna put that on our signs and sell it on that basis, right? Yes, yes, the, uh, the, the, the trophy of the slain animal. Uh, so, um, when uh again <laughs> this <laughs> yes well i uh lived in a neighborhood called arbutus ridge uh apparently there were once arbutus trees there uh <laughs> perhaps where my house was uh so yeah there's um uh and so i guess that's another interesting feature here right because um there are moments where we can see how um, the gender and sexual politics of the park are place-based. Um, clearly we've, we've left them. What, what you can do in your car obviously changes by the time you get to the muffler shop. But, um, the degree to which, um, when Mr. Leahy has the complete psychiatric meltdown and attempts to take Ricky hostage, um, the cops even though they have to take all these calls and drive to Sunnyvale to deal with these problems, suddenly uh, the fact that Mr. Leahy's wearing a dress becomes way more important now that he's out there on the high street. That uh, one would think that the propane and the gun might be prioritized ahead of the dress. But one can see that in terms of shocking the local constabulary, it's not. It's that Mr. Leahy thinks he can wear his dress off the park premises. Uh, that um, that we can see that um, it's that because class has been nailed to this space, we can see that the sexual mores and norms of the park um, obtain within a very small geographic area. Other thoughts on gender and sexuality in the park. So I wonder what is it that like, you were saying you think that it, the people in the park find being transgender more acceptable than being gay to them. And it kind of, um, it reminded me of, I was reading this article about um, that apparently in, I think it's in Iran, where um, that in their, in their country, it's, um, there's a lot of prosecution of, of gay and lesbian people, but not of transgendered people. And there's this incredible pressure, apparently, for if you're gay or lesbian, that that you're actually transgendered and should 
go through the process and, and have transgender surgery, et cetera, because apparently, according to this article I was reading, that someone had um, at some point convinced the Shah that, that people who were transgendered were an actual thing and should be helped and et cetera. And so therefore, um, he decided that that was the case. Um, and so it's, it's a very different attitude um, towards transgendered people. And in fact, gay and lesbian people are, are pushed towards instead identifying as, as transgendered when that's not in fact their identity. Well, like I just, I, I read something about this. Yeah, no, this is, no, absolutely that story of Iran is the case. And we find that this is spreading among American evangelicals and British evangelicals. Uh, that, that's an ascendant belief. Um, but what actually shields us from understanding how conservative the belief is, is the way in which we situate ourselves, right? Because the modern progressives, people who, who use this term, um, like this is a this is a term that's had that often refers to um, like progressives. What are some of the things that's true about them? Well, they trust authority figures much more. That's a progressive trait. Um, there are all kinds of progressive traits that when you start unpacking things, you go, "Isn't this a kind of conservatism?" So recognize that in Anglo America. This is increasingly the belief of progressives, that people who believe in trusting authority figures, who believe in governmental authority, who believe that, that we need more social order, more technocracy, are people who are either silent or supportive of, um, of a politics that uh, does place uh, gay and lesbian people um, in an inferior role to transgender people and under increasing pressure to identify as transgender rather than gay or lesbian. So in a way, um, because we don't think, we progressives don't think we are anything like uh, Iranian revolutionaries, um, we can exoticize them doing these things as a way of obscuring from ourselves that we ourselves are doing it. I um, heard, so I was contacted by an activist in the Comox Valley today about some of my writing on this subject. And um, for the second year in a row, the San Francisco Pride Parade has permitted floats um, showing lesbians being hanged in effigy. Uh, that lesbian lynching floats are now part of San Francisco pride because um, trans women view lesbians as a hate group, which is why we are completely permissive within progressive culture of trans women uh, stalking lesbians and threatening to rape them or breaking into lesbian facilities and um, writing death threats on them. So 
we're actually living this experience of misogyny right now, where um, uh, where we've decided that um, any um, threat of violence uh, trans women uh, wish to enact on um, self-identified lesbians is an instance of the trans women being persecuted and the lesbians being the bullies. Uh, so I, I think that in many ways, if we're able to see our own conservatism, the world starts snapping into a cleaner view. Uh, Jonathan. I don't disagree with you at all as far as the trans-lesbian conflict is concerned here. But I remember you arguing on other occasions that a politics of decorum is naturally oppressive and that progressive people should be empowered to use the most startling and, and impolite language available. I wouldn't say decorum. I would say etiquette and decorum are different. Okay. Um, no, I, I, I would agree that, um, uh, but yeah, no, you're definitely directly referencing something here. I mean, I think that there's a difference between language being startling or disgusting and language being an explicit threat to rape or murder someone. I think that you can string as long a list of obscenities together as you want um, without it implying that somebody should be physically assaulted or killed. And so I would draw a line between um, rape and murder threats and um, highly obscene or degrading language. Um, I think that there, I think that we can construct a line there. But I think the main difference between decorum and etiquette is that decorum is a largely intuitive thing and etiquette is a largely occult thing. Uh, RT. Yeah, to that point, it's like, is it more shocking for trans women to make those kinds of threats on social media or is it more shocking to say trans women should not use their penises as weapons. That second thing is way more like out of bounds and crazy and not allowed in, in like the discussion climate today. And so I think it does say that like, just because a word is naughty or vulgar doesn't mean it's necessarily a breach of etiquette. Well, I think that's the very essence of etiquette, but not decorum. I think decorum is largely yeah. the term for the empathetic effort and etiquette is largely a codified set of rules, which often subvert our theory of decorum. Um, that, uh, uh, and, you know, but I, I'm making an, an etymological case there in order to draw a bright I mean, line between those in words. Yeah, but there are particular contexts in which you could, without specifying any particular action, Describe a person in terms which are reliably historically associated with violence. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, maybe I'm the, not maybe gonna... the word, the language may not be available for, you know, cis white people, <laughs> but <laughs> the language is certainly available for other kinds of people, which yeah. would make that distinction hard to sustain in press often. Oh, and I, I would go further uh, to say it's not merely a distraction. Often these conflicts are deliberately structured in order to facilitate the agenda of a dominant group that goes well beyond distraction. It's pretty clear 
who is going to benefit from the normalization of rape threats as political discourse. And it's not going to be trans people. It's going to be the alt-right. It's going to be the authoritarian right. It's going to be men with a very toxic and very conventional understanding of masculinity. It's going to, and, and so it's not merely um, that we see uh, groups being manipulated to be pitted against one another. It's that discourses for that conflict are explicitly designed as a kind of vanguard that if we can get this discourse permitted in this context, then what happens if this discourse becomes permissible in the context of society as a whole? What if, uh, what if we can, and uh, that's what I'm seeing, is it's not merely uh, trans women being distracted from how they are oppressed by the religious right. It's that in fact, they are handing the religious right the very tool that they will use to engage in that oppression, uh, which will be sexual violence. And what can we say? Well, we just, we have to say that that's what's going on, even though people will get very upset. There's a dress rehearsal for this that I, I really, uh, that we really saw with, um, the porn split in feminism in the 70s and 80s, right? That, um, uh, that uh, second wave feminists became very divided over the question of whether pornography was intrinsically oppressive. And what this did was it made, so these battles were going on and these battles needed resources and supporters. And so anti-porn feminists experienced more and more support and got more and more resources from the Christian right. And pro-porn feminists experienced more support and got more resources from pimps and pornographers. Um, and so you, um, and we're seeing this again with the debate about whether sex trafficking exists. Um, where um, you, where there, there are two different parts of a larger patriarchal machine. And I think given the level of historical knowledge of that first split in the 70s and 80s, I think this is absolutely conscious by the right. I think this is being very, these uh, conflicts are being very deliberately ginned up by the right, that this was so successful in the 70s and 80s that uh, so many feminists uh, ended up doing the work of one or the other of these very destructive patriarchal forces. Um, why not try this again? Yeah, so Gabrielle. If you make an etiquette breach, you could be subject to a rape threat or a death threat. And what are those etiquette breaches? Well, I think the JK Rowling posts are a very good example. Now, we might not consider what J.K. Rowling wrote to be offensive, but we have a different theory of what it means to exist as a person than identitarians do. Identitarians believe that identity and ontology, both of which you can translate as being, are the same thing. So, B, 
being in the sense of I am a man is conflated with being in the sense of I am alive. And so what then happens is if somebody says, could you explain to me um, how it is that you are a man or how it is that you are a woman or how it is that you are whatever it is that you say you are, what that's translated to for people who believe in this theory of etiquette is, I demand that you explain to me why you're allowed to be alive. So one of the, the, one of the reasons we see all these rape threats and all these death threats is because they're understood by the people making them as retaliatory and commensurate with what has just been said to them. Well, I know. Oh, yes. And um, that's, of course, what we see in all kinds of communities. Uh, you know, part of this tragedy, I mean, um, there are all kinds of people who would be raising their voices in favor of pluralism, except for the steep social consequences they face when they do. You know, so my experience uh, in both Vancouver and Toronto of organizing with people in the trans community was that we shared a belief in feminism um, and that that became a structuring feature of how we managed our interactions with one another. Um, the replacement of that feminist consensus with, I would argue, the illusion of an identitarian consensus creates problems because it also involves policing the identitarian consensus. And hearing from this woman in today about how, because she doesn't think rape relief should be defunded, um, the other, that the trans women who are dominant um, have repeatedly threatened her with gang rape and she's afraid to leave her house now. So we have people in communities who are seeking to engage in acts of solidarity. And that's why I think it's very correct <clears throat> to think about this in terms of outside forces and outside money and outside agendas. Because I don't think that these forms of, these new forms of intolerance and violence are just naturally and autochthonously welling up. I think that they're, um, uh, that, resources from outside of communities are coming in to magnify some voices and silence others. That is absolutely central to how identitarian etiquette works by making questions of identity into questions of ontology. We've created this very high stakes game uh, in which people feel profoundly unsafe and they lash out with violence or threats of violence. Oh, oh, I should tell my, this is a gender and sexuality episode. This has not been nearly as funny as a Trailer Park Boys class should be, so I should tell my oncology joke now. Uh, so um, I, uh, I, I, I became mystified um, when, um, you know, I, you know, I was, uh, after I was with Corey for a while, um, you know, I, become well enough domesticated, spending enough good time up here that um, uh, Corey's uh, female friends uh, began, you know, sort of seeking my advice and then talking to me about, you know, dating as middle-aged women in the age of Tinder and uh, all of the hilarity and problems associated with all that. And I was just floored by the number of unsolicited dick pics out there. I just... 
I couldn't believe that just by virtue of having a Tinder account, there's just like this blizzard of bad dick coming across your screen all the time, just uncontrolled. It's just like, and first of all, I thought, well, this is a very interesting problem because uh, these, these penises are surprisingly well photographed. Um, how is it that men have developed all this photographic skill? Uh, you know, this is, this is something that's hard to pose, um, hard to get at. Um, I don't see this quality of photography in other areas of human endeavor by amateurs. Uh, so what's going on here? And so I, I, I became interested in the, the, these questions of like, uh, and I, I'm still mystified. Uh, I'm, still, I'm still mystified. I, I still don't understand how people are getting in all the necessary practice to be producing the outcomes that we're seeing in the world. Uh, but um, I was regaled with stories of the correct response to the unsolicited dick pic. And by far, my favorite was, are you sure you're all right? You know, I don't like the look of that mole. You should probably go to an oncologist right away. I don't know why you think men don't like looking at their own penises. I'm, I'm sure they do. I'm sure that's a great part of the video. Well, that explanation has profound explanatory value. There's a lot we could explain away with that one piece of knowledge. I think we forget how, how homoerotic straight male culture is. That's a damn good point. Um, okay, and it's the note we're going out on. It's 5.15.